being here this morning. I'm very excited to get to continue our series on defending Paul or Paul, a legal case study. And this is the issue that I've been confronted with. I want to look freshly at Paul in light of the story of his arrest in Jerusalem in 57 AD at the temple, the events that unfolded there and look at it under the lens of my life as a trial lawyer with the question being, how would I have gone about defending Paul if I'd been retained to do so. Now, this is a Sunday morning life group at Champion Forest Baptist Church. The goal in our life group is to not only just grow closer to God, but better understand him, better understand how he has related to us in history as well as our lives today, and do so under the the umbrella of better learning the Bible. So this class is a tapestry, a montage uh, of all of those different goals. But I'm absolutely more and more convinced as I go through this series with you that it illuminates Paul and his life in a different way than we normally get. And I do think it makes a difference to us. So I thank you for joining me on the journey. I thank you for being here this morning. We are in the process. Class one was looking at the facts surrounding the arrest. It's as if we got the arrest, the the police record or, or read the press clippings of what happened. Then our second class, we began the interview with Paul. And if I were the lawyer... I would sit down with a legal pad or a book. I use a book a lot of times. And I would sit down and just start writing down from my interview of the client. And I would sit down with Paul and I'd want to know some background information. Because if you want to know where someone is, you need to know where they've been. I can't understand and relate to someone if I don't know their history and their past. If I've got someone who's been arrested for a crime, I'd like to know, have they been a criminal before? If I've got someone arrested for being a rabble rouser, I'd like to know how much rabble they've been rousing before. If I've got someone who's got a speeding ticket, I'd like to know how many they had before. If I've got someone who, look, dog bite cases, okay? Here's some free legal knowledge. You get one free dog bite. If your dog bites someone and it's the first time your dog ever bit anyone, you're okay. But if your dog has bitten someone before and your dog bites someone again, you're in trouble. Because you had knowledge, your dog's a biter. And you got to be a little more responsible with your dog. So I'd need to know, how many people have your dog bitten before? You know, does your dog eat people for breakfast? You know, this type of stuff becomes important. So we looked at the initial background. We we looked at Paul's name. Is it Paul? Is it Saul? Did he change it because of something that happened in his life? Was he running from something? Did he need an alias? No, none of that. His name was both Paul and Saul. Saul, as the Hebrew word Shaul, the Greeks didn't even have an S-H sound in their alphabet. It would have been very difficult to pronounce for Greeks. Paul, on the other hand, is a Greek-Roman name. And that would have been Paul's Roman name, Paulos, in the, the, the Greek, Paulus in the Roman, uh, Latin. And, and so Paul used his, his 
name more common to his area, if you will. And we talked about that. We talked about what Paul looked like. If you want to know more about that, go to that last lesson. We talked about Paul's family history also in the last lesson. How Paul says he was born a Roman citizen. Didn't just become one. That Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. And we talked about where that was. That he was a citizen of that town which cost a lot of money. That city cost 500, a year and a half of wages to be a a citizen of the town. And Paul was. His father was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. Paul was not an only child. We know that. We know that Paul was good in Greek. He was good in Hebrew. He was good in Aramaic. And he was at least competent in Latin. So Paul's got three... Four languages, at least, that he's real good with. We know that Paul studied under a fellow named Gamaliel. All of this would come out in that initial interview. That Paul had kept his Hebrew lineage pure. He could trace it all the way back to Benjamin. That Paul, it looks like, may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. You're saying, what's the Sanhedrin? We'll talk about that in a moment. So one of the first things I would do as I'm doing this interview is I would be taking these things on my legal pad and I would be drawing circles around certain things and putting off to the side, research, research, research. Now, I've got two people who are here who have done a tremendous amount of research for me before. Actually, I've got three people who are here who have done a tremendous amount of legal research for me before. Tim Wilson, would you stand up? Tim Wilson does a ton of legal work for me. He is a private investigator. Uh, Daniel Shelton's a private investigator in here also. But they they are able to go get statements and do work in, in fantastic ways. Absolutely critical. Now, uh, Sarah Lanier, my daughter, stand up please, Sarah. Sarah Lanier is a senior in high school who also works after school and does research for me and for other people at the firm, puts together legal memoranda and, and, and finds out information. If you want to know something on the Internet, ask someone below the age of 30. If you want to know everything the Internet says about something, ask someone who's in high school. And that's what we've got Sarah to do. And then the third one that I can't leave out is Becky, my beautiful wife. Becky, would you please stand up? Becky has done legal research for me before, but she, uh, in fact, she used to work at the office and I would tease everyone that I was her boss from about 8.30 in the morning till about 5 o'clock at night. Then she was my boss from 5 o'clock at night until about 8.30 the next morning and uh, decided that she needed to be the full-time boss so she doesn't do work at the firm anymore. But still, occasionally, I draw on her for her legal expertise. She's specialized in a different area of law than, than me, and, and she's been helpful to me before. So I'd be circling, and I'd be saying, okay, I need to know this stuff. I need someone to show me where Tarsus is on a map. I need someone to tell me about that city. We've talked about a number of those things already, but I want to talk about some more. We talked about last week, Uh, week before last, what is a Pharisee? The Pharisees were a very powerful group within Judaism. They were uh, one of multiple historical sects, but the history of the Pharisees themselves was very sensitive and very important. I'll draw more on that probably next week, so I'll remind you a little more about it then. 
in the Bible, we read about them, but they were a Bible-based group. They believed in the Old Testament from the beginning to the end. They held on to it and thought it God's word. They considered it, as Paul would call it, because Paul was a Pharisee, the oracles of God. It was not simply what humanity wrote thinking about God or recording adventures with God or writing poems about God, but it was God's revelation to humanity that God used humanity to produce and that the Jews were entrusted with by God. And so we talked about that. We talked about uh, uh, they believed in life after death. Not all Jews did at the time of Jesus and Paul. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. You die, poop, it's over. They believed um, uh, in uh, uh, demons and a hierarchy of demons. And Paul writes about this. And Paul writes about how Jesus, and, and Jesus references this. I mean, when Jesus says, as Pastor uh, Avery was preaching this morning from the last uh, paragraph in Matthew, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Jesus is saying he's got authority over all of the realms of the demons. He's got authority over all of the levels. They, the, the, the Pharisees were very strict about holiness and they believed holiness before God. How we live before God was extremely important. Paul held on to all of this. Now, this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to focus on the mentor Gamaliel and the Sanhedrin issues. So these are issues where I would drive research. I would send Sarah. I would send Tim. I would send young lawyers that work for me. And I would say, and I would go myself and I'd say, I want answers. I need to know this. Let me tell you why. The mentor Gamaliel, I'd start a whole new sheet with him. Because it's a big deal to Paul. Paul says this in Acts 22, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, as he's making, as Paul is making Paul's defense to the, to the Jews that were trying to stone him and, and uh, uh, rioting over Paul, under the aegis or the watchful eye of the Roman tribune, who's not understanding him because Paul's speaking in Hebrew, but Paul says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense I make before you. They heard him addressing them in the Hebrew language and they got quiet. That was a holy language that was saved for important matters. He said, I, and, and you might be thinking, well, no, they were Hebrews. Of course they spoke Hebrew. No, 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 no. The common Hebrew tongue was Aramaic at this point in time. So Paul's speaking in their Bible language. Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, but most of it in Hebrew. So Paul says, I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Now, that's in here. To us, it doesn't make that much difference. I attended an event this last week 
for Senator Lindsey Graham. Senator Lindsey Graham is a is a senator from South Carolina, and 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 he was at the event, and it was fascinating to me to hear him talk and to get to visit with him. Senator Lindsey Graham is a Republican. Now, in our Congress, which includes the House of Representatives and the Senate, there are Republicans and there are Democrats. And the two don't often get along on some certain issues. There are both have the good of the country, I believe, at heart. But now, now, <laughs> Ms. Carolyn, I said, I believe both have the good of the country at heart. I do. I have friends on both sides of the aisle, including in the Capitol itself. But within just the Republican circles, they don't all get along. There's a lot of different groups. And in some ways, they, they, we, we have this expression, at least we did out in Lubbock, G and Haw. Do you all know that expression? People on the Internet may not know that unless they're, they either drive mule teams or they drive sled dogs because they use it in sled dogs. Uh, Haw means you're telling the mules to go left. G means you're telling them to go right. So you just shout out, Haw, Haw, Haw. That means go left, left, left. And, and they know it. A good, well-trained team of mules or dogs knows it. G, 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 they go right. So if something doesn't G and haw, it means you won't go one way and this going the other. Okay? The Republicans don't G and haw on everything. I want to know why this is put in here. I want to dig a little deeper. I don't want to just read past that Gamaliel. I'm defending this man. He wants my best. I, he deserves my best. One thing we lawyers are required to do is to zealously represent our client. That's in the ethical code. I am to zealously represent my client. There are cases of people on death row that have been reversed because those people being tried couldn't afford a lawyer. They got a court-appointed lawyer who slept through the trial. Can you imagine representing someone whose being, whose life is on the line and you sleep through the trial as the lawyer? Okay. Paul's life's on the line. If you and I are his legal team, we got to be zealous. I want to know why he, at the very start of his defense, why is he telling all these people about Gamaliel? I mean, we read it in the 21st century and our comments kind of like, Gamaliel who? Why are you wasting my time with that? Let's move on to something else. This is Bible study. We want some serious Bible. Time out. This is serious Bible. We're going to spend some time on Gamaliel because I'm going to have my people research Gamaliel. I want to know everything I can about him. Now, the source material that I'd send my legal team to really is going to fall down into three different areas. There's a fellow named Josephus that you've heard me talk about who was a Jewish historian. He wrote histories, plural, of the Jewish people. He wrote them as a man who lived in Israel until the Roman conquering of Israel in 66 to 70 A.D. And then Josephus went to Rome with Titus. 
And under the auspices of the emperor of Rome, he wrote histories of the Jewish people so that the Roman government and the Roman people would have a better understanding of who these rebellious folks were and what happened. His histories are meticulous. He writes about Jesus. He writes about a number of different things, and he writes about this specific time with Paul. But in the process of those writings, he writes about Gamaliel and other things relevant to Gamaliel. Let me tell you, we also are going to get information from the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a Jewish oral tradition that was finally written down around 200 A.D. or C.E., depending upon how you want to call it. But around 200 A.D., and the the rabbis started writing it down because they were afraid that the oral tradition might get lost somehow. But this oral tradition goes back even uh, several hundred years before Jesus in the Mishnah. Now, there's also another group of writings called the Talmud. There's a Babylonian Talmud, a Palestinian Talmud. But the Talmud is composed of two different parts. It's got the Mishnah and it's got commentary on that oral Mishnah called the Gemara. And so from these writings, these Jewish writings, we can learn about Gamaliel and things relevant to Gamaliel. And I'd have my team scouring the material. I'd be scouring it because I'd want to know why this was so important to Paul. One of the first things they discover is that there are four Gamaliels being written about. Now that's pretty important. If a name is a good name, people tend to use it. If a name is the bad name, how many people have named their kid Jezebel? I got a daughter. I got four of them. I promise you, Jezebel didn't even make the top ten. There was a woman who about 3,000 years ago ruined that name. And I have zero desire to name any of my daughters Jezebel. Furthermore, if my wife had been named Jezebel, I don't think I'd have dated her much less married her. Gamaliel was a popular name because Gamaliel was an important, impressive, incredible figure. And so people would name. Now, our Gamaliel, which one of the four is he? He is Gamaliel Hazakan. That means Gamaliel the Elder. He was the first one. He's the one, he's the oldest. He's the first Gamaliel, Gamaliel the first, Gamaliel the elder. And other people would name their kids Gamaliel and people in his family would carry that name because of who he was. He was a very notable man. He was one, all right, let's, let's go, let's, let's talk about him. He was the grandson of a Jewish rabbi named Hillel. And, and all of this is important. Let me tell you why. Let's talk about Hillel for just a moment. Let's go over to the Elmo. So, at the time of Jesus, just as I said, Republicans today have different uh, um, agendas and different thoughts. Let me take a step back and tell you that the Pharisees had different schools of thought as well. They were not just, oh, gee, it's all the Pharisees. 
In fact, some rabbinical writings talk about seven different kinds of Pharisees, but it's talking more about how they live, not the schools of thought. There were two main schools of thought at the time of Jesus. One school, let's see if we can draw a schoolhouse here, Uh, make this a little bit more useful. There we go. Okay, so we have one schoolhouse, and and this is an old-time schoolhouse, so if school doesn't look like this anymore, uh, tough. Um, here, those old-timey ones, they had like a bell on top that they would ring for when it's time to go to class, okay? So this is the school of Hillel. And Hillel had a school. Now, there was a competitive school by another rabbi who did not like Hillel. I say he didn't like him. He may have, they may have chummed around all the time. But he certainly didn't like his views on life and his views on the Torah. And this other school was the school of Shammai. All right. School of Shammai. You got it? Now. These are the two competing schools at the time of Jesus. J-E-S-U-S. When Jesus is a 12... <laughs> when... Je- <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we got a really good Sunday school teacher. Can't spell Jesus, but other than that, he knows his Hebrew history. Um, the... Uh, um, at the time when Jesus was 12 and his parents accidentally <laughs> left him behind at the temple. And they went back and said, well, didn't you know I'd be here? The people he was engaging with, the rabbis, the sages, they would have belonged to one of these two schools. The school of Hillel or the school of Shammai. The school of Hillel, um, dare we say, dare we say that they were a little more lax on the law. Now, what does that mean? They weren't. Don't don't start thinking that that they uh, that, that 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 they just disregarded the law. No, more relaxed in the sense that they might be willing to wear brown shoes with their suit instead of black shoes with their suit. But they're still going to be lace ups. No, they're not going to wear loafers. Okay, here's an example. Everybody agreed that if your ox got stuck in the ditch on the Sabbath, you were allowed to pull your ox out of the ditch. Okay, even though do no work on the Sabbath is the general rule, no, is the commandment. You're allowed to pull your ox out of the ditch if your ox gets stuck in the ditch because your ox is going to be dead come uh, uh, Sunday, the first day of the week, if you don't. So on the Sabbath, the last day of the week, you can pull your ox out of the ditch. But what about if a chicken lays an egg on the Sabbath? Are you allowed to eat that egg? Shammai said, Miss Carolyn says, I would. Shammai, Shammai says, absolutely not. That's validating the work of the chicken on the Sabbath. Hillel says, yeah, eat the egg. That's not much different than pulling the ox out of the ditch. So, More lax, but that doesn't really mean that much. 
You know, chicken in the egg is an example. All right. Now, that means Shammai, of course, is strict, more strict, or is it stricter? Do you all know? It's whatever I prefer. I'm going to say more strict. But if you're stricter about how I use those words, you can change it. Now, here's another good example. And, and, and this is an example of, of an attitude towards Gentiles. Shammai was much more strict. Um, Shammai was responsible for causing stricter divisions between Jew and Gentile, where the Jews weren't supposed to have anything to do with the Gentiles. That strictness, um, uh, uh, Gentiles were a no-no to Shammai. Here's an example that's given in the rabbinic literature. A Gentile comes to Hillel and Shammai and says, if you can teach me everything I need to know about the Torah while I'm standing on one foot, I'll convert. So he goes to Shammai, the one who doesn't really care for Gentiles. He says, if you teach me everything I need to know about the Torah while I'm standing on one foot, I'll convert. You know what Shammai says? Nothing. He takes his stick and he beats him up and says, get out of here. The man goes to Hillel and says, if you tell me everything I need to know about the law, about Jewish practice, custom, etc., while I'm standing on one foot, I'll convert. You know what Hillel said? He said, everything you don't like for people to do to you, don't do to them. Everything else is commentary. Go study. That's very close to what Jesus said. It's just the opposite. Jesus said the golden rule. Do to others what you want them to do to you. Whereas Hillel had already worded it from the negative side. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Jesus is much more so in the Hillel camp. This is where we're going to find Jesus. Jesus, during that divided time, and that's why some Pharisees are very antagonistic to Jesus, but you'll see Jesus will talk to the Samaritan woman. You'll see Jesus will talk to the Gentile. You'll see Jesus tell his apostles to go out into all of the nations, the ethnos, and to preach the gospel. Because those, for he's an includer. Like Hillel. Now, why is this important? We're going to talk in a little bit about the Sanhedrin. I'm going to set this sheet aside, and I want to draw the Sanhedrin out for you, and I want you to think about it. So the Sanhedrin is the ruling body of Israel. They set up the laws. This Think of them as the Congress and the courts all rolled into one. The Sanhedrin has got... Oh, 70 or 72 people, depending upon who you're listening to historically. But it's got a bunch of people. And it's made up of Sadducees. And I think I've misspelled them. And it's made up of Pharisees. And those themselves are very different. The Sadducees, 
These are the elite. Am I still on the screen? Yes. These are the rich elite that that are very tied into Rome, and 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 they're they're just they're the snots. The Pharisees. These are the lawyers. I heard that. It's not always a bad thing. They were known as the party of snakes. I mean, uh, <laughs> no. These are the lawyers. There's, we, we think of lawyers like you go to law school. You didn't go to law school back then. The Jewish law was the Bible. The, the, the Torah, that was the law. So they, they are the ones who study the law. They're the lawyers. They're the Torah-bound people. They care about this stuff. Now, we already know that there are two schools. We've got the school of Hillel among these Pharisees, and we've got the school of Shammai. Right? Remember? Uh, here it is. School of Hillel, school of Shammai. Now, that's who is here. All of the Sanhedrin is presided over by the president. There is a, a president who rules over the Sanhedrin. At the time of Jesus as a child, the president of the Sanhedrin was Hillel. So when Jesus is a child, when Jesus was 12, the president of the Sanhedrin, who generally could have most of the 72, most of the people would follow the president. It's kind of like in England, the prime minister. You get to be prime minister in part because you've got uh, uh, an abundant party below you. But most of the people then in the Sanhedrin that are Pharisees are Hillel followers. But Hillel dies before Jesus' ministry starts. And when Hillel dies, do you know who became the president of the Sanhedrin? Yes, it was Shammai. And Shammai is the president of the Sanhedrin during the ministry of Jesus. So while Jesus is there talking like Hillel, including the Gentiles pulling in a tax collector who deals with Gentiles as one of his chosen few, dealing with the Samaritans, urging people to go out and, and healing uh, uh, Jairus' daughter. I mean, Jesus is doing all of these things. And the Pharisees who are ruling the Sanhedrin don't like it one bit. Jesus is not just rocking the boat He's rocking the political power structure trying to go back to that liberal Hillel. And so there's a... Some people take politics seriously. And they're very upset about all of this. So it is under the leadership of Shammai when Jesus is uh, um, in ministry and dies. Shammai dies, and guess who becomes the head of the Sanhedrin? 
Hillel's grandson. His name is Gamaliel. So Gamaliel is head of the Sanhedrin. He's got a star pupil. Do you know who his star pupil is? Paul. And so Paul becomes part of the Sanhedrin. And Gamaliel is part of the Sanhedrin until he dies in 50 A.D. That's when he dies. So that's about seven years before Paul gives this speech. So you've still got on the Sanhedrin a lot of the friends of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is a powerful structure. We should think of him the way you think of the president. Paul's telling the crowd, I used to study, I was the student, I was the protege of the last president. And all that that, you know, if I told you, um, you know, I studied, I learned everything I, I know about some of this stuff uh, from Barack Obama, President Obama. Now, <laughs> that, that would make you think, okay, I know a lot about him. Because you would start associating that with, with the positions of Barack Obama. If I said I learned everything I know uh, from when I was a protege of George Bush, you'd start thinking, okay, I know where he's going to land on these issues. And you'd start thinking, I know what he's, okay. These people knew what this was. Gamaliel is the grandson of Hillel. He's the head of the Sanhedrin, if we go back to the PowerPoint now. So that's what we're learning here. And that's an important part. Gamaliel, as president of the Sanhedrin, um, had died about five to seven years earlier. But he was a wise man. Let me show you what Gamaliel said in Acts chapter 5, 33 through 39. Help you remember this. The question was at the Sanhedrin, what should we do about all of these Christians? They want to kill them. And here's what happens at a meeting of the Sanhedrin when the president is Gamaliel. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And this was uh, them hearing that Jesus was sent to as Messiah. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people. Now, why does Luke give all this extra information about Gamaliel? Luke's not writing for the Jews that Paul was speaking to in Paul's speech. Paul doesn't need to give any of this detailed information. Those Jews knew who Gamaliel was. Luke's writing this for the entire Gentile world as well as the Jewish world. So he's got to give some more data. Um, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, he's the president, stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a while. And Gamaliel said, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these guys. Earlier, remember when that Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and he had like 400 people who joined him. He got killed, everybody was dispersed, and it came to nothing. How about when Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him? He died. 
And everybody who followed him was scattered. He said, Jesus died. He's got some followers. Leave them alone. In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Just leave them alone. If this plan or undertaking is of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow them, and you might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel the elder. That's who Paul studied under. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint. We've got this then as, a, as an interesting situation. Let me tell you just a couple other things about Gamaliel real quick. He was a letter writer. We have copies of letters he wrote not only to people outside of Jerusalem and Galilee. He wrote letters to all of the Jews who were all around the Mediterranean world. That's going to be important. I'm going to make a note of that because Paul, his prize student, is famous for us for writing letters. Writing letters all around the world. And what's more is Paul would go around the world and he'd go to the various synagogues and they, and, and you just read about it and it just says, and Paul went to the synagogue and he got to address them. Who just lets, you, you know, Pastor Fleming's not going to let some guy just wander in here on a Sunday morning and say, hey, I'd like to preach today. I'm not going to let just someone walk in here and say, hey, I'd like to teach your class today. But Paul is a student of Gamaliel, and everybody knew who he was all around the world. He was the head of president of the Sanhedrin. He was the president of the council. He wrote the letters for everybody. When his prize student comes to town, you bet. Take the floor. Tell us what you know. And, G- and, he, and Paul would tell him about Jesus. Not only that, but um, the tolerance of Gentiles had to have made such an impression on Paul that when Jesus says, now I'm sending you to the Gentiles, Paul says, hey, I'm there. Paul was pre-positioned to understand that by his teachings under Gamaliel. Last note of Gamaliel that you read about when you research on him. He was huge on the Greek language. In fact, he said the only language that could legitimately translate God's scriptures is into Greek. If you want to translate them out of the holy writings that they are, the only way you're going to do it and keep them holy is if you do it into Greek. He was big on the Greek language. Of course, every time Paul in his letters quotes the Old Testament, Paul quotes it out of the Greek translation. He was a student of Gamaliel. I hope you see how this picture's filling out. And we've got to talk about the Sanhedrin, and I've got to talk about it in more detail. And, and, and let's, let's do a little of it right now and see if we can't get that done. So, the Sanhedrin. Um, I've talked to you about them being uh, the ruling class. There's a question. Was Paul a member? Now, the reason the question is there is because to be a member of the Sanhedrin, our records indicate you had to be at least 40 years old. So that meant Paul was at least 40 years old before his conversion. Also to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So Paul would have been married at some point in time, and either his wife would have left him or she would have died. So we can know that about Paul if Paul's a member of the Sanhedrin. By the way, I like Paul's advice on marriage. 
I try to follow it, not only because it's godly advice, God's put it in the Bible, but I also tend to listen to advice of people, marital advice of people who've been married. I have a little bit of distance between people who've never been married before who tell me about how to be a husband. That's kind of like me trying to tell one of you ladies about what childbirth is like. I got no clue. I know it looks brutally painful, and I know I don't really want to go there unless I have to, and in the end, I get a great-looking kid out of it. That's about all I need to know. I can't sit there and say, let me tell you about the pain you're about to experience. You would just properly give me a mean look. Say, get out of my face. So this is important. It's got implications for Paul's age. It's got implications for his marriage. Here's the reason we think he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Acts 26, 1 through 11 tells the story. Now in Acts 26, this is after Paul's arrest that we're really looking in at. In Acts 26, 1 through 11, Paul's got a chance to defend himself between uh, before Uh, Not just the Roman governor Festus, but the king, Agrippa II. Now, Agrippa II, I can tell you a lot about him in a minute, but this is, is something that you need to know here. So, Paul, Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul stretches out his hand, which is what the orator or the lawyer would do before they spoke, and began his defense. He assumed the posture. He knew what he was doing. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against the accusations of the Jews. Especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Do you know why Agrippa was familiar? Agrippa was responsible for appointing the Jewish high priest. The Jewish high priest is the one who got to call the Sanhedrin into assembly. Wasn't the president of the Sanhedrin, but he called them into assembly. So the high priest, I mean, Agrippa knew who the Sanhedrin was, obviously. He would appoint the person who called them, who was the high priest ruler, who sat in the Sanhedrin. He knew all of their issues. He knew all of the politics quite well. And he says, so please listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time if they're willing to testify. According to the strictest party, I lived as a Pharisee. Wasn't a Sadducee. I was a Pharisee. And I was, I was uh, the, the strictest party we've got. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, if you skip down to verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Name means reputation. When we say there's power in the name of Jesus, it doesn't make the name Jesus magic. The power in the name of Jesus, biblically speaking, is in the, what Jesus has done. It's his reputation. It's his track record. You, we, could, we could better sing the biblical concept, there is power in the track record of Jesus to break every chain, to break every chain, to break every... See, you're not going to break the chain simply by saying the word Jesus. You break the chain, Jesus breaks the chains through his track record because he conquered the chain. 
I was convinced I ought to do many things to oppose the track record of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after I got my authority from the chief priest, the Sanhedrin. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I cast my vote against them. New sheet. How are we doing time-wise? Y'all got another hour? Okay. Um, the Greek word for that's translated as vote, yeah, I'm on the screen, I'm on the screen, is pse phos. That's P-S, long E, P-H-O-S. Pseifos. Do you know what a pseifos is? It's a pebble or a small rock. And you had two of them when you voted in the Sanhedrin. There's one that was white and one that was black. If you wanted to vote to acquit someone, you threw your white pebble in. If you wanted to vote to condemn someone, you threw in the black pebble. He's saying when Stephen came up and the issue of Stephen came up for vote, I threw in my black pebble. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He voted to condemn Stephen. I, this is this is this is background knowledge that's going to be critical to us to understand who Paul is and why he did what he did. So we'll pick back up there next week, God willing, hear your points for home. Paul writes to the Corinthians with all of this history and past of having thrown that black pebble in. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I locked them up. I killed them. Here's my question. Don't raise your hand. Answer it inside. How many of you have done worse than that? How many of you have done worse than finding people who are carrying God's message and standing up for him faithfully and killing them because they are? I got to tell you, maybe a couple of you. But I really don't think for anybody in this room or hearing this message that our worst touches Paul's. Hitler's would. Saddam Hussein's would. Assad would. There are tyrants in this world who have done that. There were slave owners in America who did that. There are lots of people maybe whose worst is on the level of Paul's. John Newton, the slave trader, his was. But it doesn't matter. Because you can be the worst of the worst of the worst. And in Jesus, we'll have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. God's best covers all of our worst. We can't get worst enough. Worster, as we would say in Lubbock. I'm worster than you are. Stephen... Stephen is about to get killed. He's going to be stoned as a martyr. And the last words he says is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Paul's standing there. Paul hears this. God answers Stephen's prayer. Not only is the sin and the the martyrdom not held against Paul, it's used to powerfully propel Paul's ministry. 
It's amazing what happens when we align ourselves with the track record of Jesus. I'm going to get with Brent. I'm going to say, would you just some Sunday sing that for me? There is power in the track record of Jesus to break every chain, to break every chain. All right, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, in the track record, by the blood, by the sacrifice, by the devotion, by the faithfulness of Lord Jesus, Messiah, Savior of the world, I commend to you, my brothers and sisters and those hearing this message, and pray that you will draw their hearts and their minds deeply into the true historical ways that you have shown your love for us and you propel that love out to the world. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.